Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. And when we read the scripture, we are going to read that whole chapter. Before we take the reading, we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing. Please join me now in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be made ready to receive your word for that which it truly is, the very word of God. May we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 18, starting at verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Memory as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favour in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sears of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a son? Now that I am old, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. 
Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Amen. May God bless his word to us. All of us have a desire to be well-liked, to have friends, even to have a best friend. And, you know, if I, if I give you some little, um, some little condensations of phrases, you'll probably smile because you know what they mean. If I say BFF, what am I talking about? Best friend forever. Well, what if it were possible to have as friend the God who created the universe? What if he could be a friend in the real and in the true sense of the word? Often we sing here what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a friend indeed. Imagine your closest friend is the creator of all creation, who holds all creation in his hand. And whilst in the text before us, it does not specifically say that Abraham was God's friend, yet the scripture says that. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 8 reads, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. If you think about friendship, well, there are certain characteristics of friendship. Friendship includes communication. The closer the friendship, the stronger the communication. I've often said to my children as they were growing up and they were wondering about meeting their life's partner. Well, one of the things you have to be able to do concerning a spouse, concerning a husband or a wife, you actually need to be able to talk to those people for hours and not really notice that the time has passed. And then after the talking has finished, you need to be able to then spend time together for hours and not really notice that the time has passed not talking. But communication, communication, how do you get to know somebody? Well, they talk. I mean, you might look at somebody and you might think I can work out something about that person by the look on their face, by 
They're uh, by the things that give away their personality. We we might share our personality by the clothes that we wear, for example, or by jewellery. Um, it's very popular these days to try and share something about yourself with tattoos. I don't know why, but it's as popular as can be these days. You look at people, but the way you get to know people is they reveal themselves to you. And in that revealing themselves to you, you only get to know what they want you to know. I mean, if you want to know, if you want to know whether or not the relationship is getting truly close, it's when a person starts to share with you the nasty little nitty gritties, the things that they actually don't normally share. When a person starts to make themselves vulnerable, communication, self-revelation, that's building friendship. Well, there's another little saying we have about friendship. If you think about it, they say you can't choose your relatives. But you can choose your friends. To be someone's friend would be to have been chosen. In some way or other, it might not on a human level be a conscious choice. But to be a friend is to have been chosen. We don't make friends with people we don't like. It's as simple as that. For whatever the reason is that we don't like them. Another indicator of friendship is that you would trust a person to do something for you. You would trust a person to do something for you. I'll pick a little thing. Recently, I had Joel pick up some goods for us that we had ordered. We were away. They were worth thousands of dollars. We paid good cash. I had no fear that he was immediately going to put them on eBay. You know, I I had every expectation that when Lisa and I got home, he would have that stuff there waiting for us. I could entrust him with something. And people who are without friends are often people who are depressed and suicidal. There's, There's nothing that drives a person down into the ground quite so hard, I think, as the feeling that you are utterly alone and abandoned in the world. And when you're in that situation, you'll ask yourself, do I even have a reason to continue to live? Do I have a purpose here? Why would I even be here? And so I've pointed out four things that you would consider to be features of friendship. And I think those four things come to the fore in the text that's before us today. First of all, there's communication, including self-revelation. I I just love verses 16 to 21. Every time I read it, it, it captures my imagination. Why? Well, think about this. God who knows everything. God whose knowledge is utterly perfect. God who doesn't learn. He doesn't learn. There's nothing that has ever surprised God, past, present or future. God's knowledge is utterly complete and totally perfect. God who, as it were, in himself, I mean, does not make choices. What do I mean by that? God does according to his will, doesn't he? Yes, he does. But think about it. He's never tossing up. I wonder if I'll go left. I wonder if I'll go right. I wonder if I'll save so-and-so. I wonder if I won't. 
I wonder if Jesus will successfully secure the church for all of eternity. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. That's not God. God in his almighty power ordains. All things, we're told in the scripture, happen according to his will. Nothing happens apart from his will. Yet look at how he reveals himself to Abraham. And remember, my friends, Jesus once told the Jews, the scriptures are speaking to you. Though they had been written thousands of years before, the scriptures are speaking to you. Well, my friends, the scriptures are speaking to us. Look at how God reveals himself here. He reveals himself as though he were a normal person. He reveals himself as though he has internal conversations where he makes a choice one way or the other. Do you see what this is? To any who are found faithful, to any whom God has saved as he saved Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. God is revealing himself to such people. He's inviting such people into relationship with himself. Verse 17 of Genesis 18, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Will I do it? You see God inviting us into fellowship, speaking to us at a level that we understand. You know, if I, if, I, if I were to be going down the back to speak to any of these smaller children who are with us here today, I'm not going to recite the creed of Chalcedon to them, am I? Not that there's anything wrong with that creed. It's a good creed. It's challenging. It's mind-expanding. But there's not much point asking my grandson whether or not he understands the incarnation and the dual divinity and humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have to speak to him at his level. And his level is, at this moment, fairly simple. God speaks to people in order that people understand. Consider that. You think in words. You communicate in words. One of the things of being a human being is that you use speech. There are a couple of um, great writers in the 20s, 30s and 40s, 1920s, 30s and 40s. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Those men were experts in language. They were experts in ancient language. You may not know it, but both men were actually of deep religious commitment. And one of the reasons why, and they both agreed on this, one of the reasons why is they could not imagine any possible way. Now, these men were Oxford Dons, all right, PhDs. They could not imagine any possible way that speech, human speech, could come into being other than as a gift from God. They considered the idea that such things could evolve to be ridiculous. God speaks to us. You see, he knows us. From Psalm 103, he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He speaks. He gives us words. 
And we, we can build our lives upon words. We can build our thought life upon words. We can build our imaginations upon words. One of the, one of the, one of the great, um, I think, one of the great sort of negatives of our age is that political campaigning is now done electronically. It's now done electronically. Communication, you know, it's dots and dashes, bits flying across the internet at the speed of light. Now, don't get me wrong, I think the internet's a good thing. But once upon a time, if you wanted to win a seat in Parliament, you actually had to get to that seat, stand somewhere prominent and make a speech and communicate with people face-to-face, words. And if you do that, people have the chance to communicate back at you. Face-to-face, words. And it's not actually about trying to create an impression. It's not actually about trying to give a sound bite. You know, if, if we call a politician these days a gifted communicator, what we mean is in 10 seconds they can say something that will go viral on the internet. That's what we mean. Back in the day, if you wanted to win a seat, you had to actually communicate. You had to get yourself in front of people's faces. God communicates with Abraham. He gets himself in Abraham's face. He communicates as though he were a normal person. God is here speaking through Moses about Abraham. How did Moses know what God was thinking? Well, God said to Moses or God said through Moses, this is the way you can communicate my relationship with Mo- with Abraham. This is the way you can communicate my relationship with Abraham. Abraham is my friend. This communication includes self-revelation. Self-revelation. Think about this. Abraham, from verses 22 down to the end of the chapter at verses 33, Abraham intercedes. He prays. This is, um, this is the first detailed example of a believer praying, interceding with God on behalf of others. I want you to look carefully and see what the basis of his intercession is. Looking at Genesis chapter 18, Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, do what is right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right, what ought to be done, what is fair. How did Abraham know that about God? How did he know that God was good? How did he know that God would do that which is right? How did he know that God would do that which is just? What was the basis of his prayer? He prayed according to the knowledge of God that God had given him. God had called Abraham to faith and revealed himself to Abraham as the saviour who keeps his promises. The saviour who fulfills his word. God had revealed himself to Abraham 
not as one of these little local idols, these, these little local gods you've got to sacrifice things to, you've got to throw a bit of blood on the altar, you've got to put a baby in the fire, you want good luck this year, don't upset a god. Abraham had said to God, I'm not one of these little paltry stupid things. I am the God, the true God. When you have my promises, you have my word. I will do that which I have said I will do. And Abraham knew that the God whom he worshipped is good. Good, pure, holy, righteous, only good. So Abraham, he prays. According to your nature, knowing that you are good, pure, holy, righteous, according to your nature, would it be right if the righteous were punished along with the wicked? According to your nature, my friends, there's something here for us, isn't there? The scriptures speak to us. We must pray according to the nature of the God to whom we are praying. There's no point praying to a God of our own invention. There's no point praying to a God that is the way we think he ought to be. He reveals himself to us in his word and we must pray according to that which he has revealed, according to his nature. To be a friend of God is to receive communication and it is to receive God's self-revelation. Consider a couple of passages in Scripture. Amos 3.7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret, his secret to his servants, the prophets. Consider John chapter 15, verse 15, No longer do I call, your, call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. When God speaks, God reveals himself to us and he expects us to receive his word with reverence. With reverence, my friends, this is what you build your life upon. Nothing else, not the wisdom of men, not the doctrines of demons, not dreams and imaginations. You build your life upon the word of God. God speaks from his word. God speaks from the scriptures to us. God spoke face to face with Abraham, his friend. Then we come to the point of being chosen. Remember, I said you don't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. Abraham is chosen. Look at Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. The ESV reads, for I have chosen him. Now, um, any other translation could legitimately say, for I have known him. I have chosen him. I have known him. I have elected him. It is actually exactly the same word used to describe the relationship between a husband and his wife. Intimate knowledge. Intimate knowledge. Intimate love. In the book of Amos, when God says to the people of Israel, you alone have I known in all the world. Do you think God's saying I'm ignorant? You know, there's two million Israelites or whatever the number might have been in the world. I know their names, but I don't know anyone else's. You alone have I known, loved, drawn close to. Abraham, as the friend of God, was 
chosen to be the friend of God. We could, we could so easily imagine that Abraham is in this privileged position on the basis of his own righteousness. And that's the temptation that you usually fall into as you read the Old Testament. You sort of, it sort of starts to become just this series of consecutive moral stories. Noah was obedient. He built an ark. I can be obedient. Abraham, Abraham was faithful. I can be faithful. David took on Goliath. I can take on Goliath. Daniel didn't back down. I won't back down, etc., etc. Now, it is true. These people are held up to us as examples. We are indeed told that this is one of the indicators that you are a faithful person, that you share in the faith of the saints. But Abraham, who here intercedes, is doing so because God has chosen him. John 15.5 reads, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me... You can do nothing. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Is Abraham faithful? Yes, most certainly. Is Abraham obedient? Yes, most certainly. Does Abraham intercede for any righteous people that might be found in Sodom? Yes, he certainly does. Why? How? Where did he get the faith? Where did he get the power? Where did he get the boldness? From God himself, what God wanted from Abraham, God gave to Abraham. Apart from Christ, Abraham could do nothing. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. He has made him known. He has made him known. Abraham was chosen for this purpose, for this role, as it were. I said one of the third things, or in my little um, introduction concerning friendship, I spoke of the fact that you entrust friends with work. You give them things to do. It's, it, this is sort of a complicated thing, and this is kind of hard to explain in a way. I've told you God knows all things. God is not in any way surprised. God does not learn. God doesn't choose one thing or another thing. God simply ordains. I've told you all of those things. All right. If I were you and if I were about to try and throw a question back at the teacher, the question would be, well, for what purpose was Abraham praying? Surely God knew what God was going to do all along. Is there any purpose in Abraham praying? Is it just a waste of words and a waste of time? Answer, God ordains the means and the way that he gets to the end. God ordains the means. What does that mean? God ordained that Abraham would intercede. God ordained that Abraham would pray. God ordained that Abraham would remember the very nature of God himself and remember that the righteous ought not be punished with the wicked. God ordained that Abraham would remember that God would make a distinction between his people and the people of the world. 
God ordained that it would happen this way. In the, think forward to the Exodus. There are times when Moses prayed. God said to Moses, step back, I'm going to destroy the whole nation and I'll make you and your children a mighty nation. And Moses said, no, destroy me. Do not destroy the nation. That would look bad on your account. You said you were saving these people. If you destroy the nation, that would look bad on your account. Destroy me rather than destroy the nation. God neither destroyed Moses nor the Israelites. But Moses prayed and God heard his prayer and God granted his prayer. Abraham was used by God to accomplish the purposes of God. It's the same in salvation, my friends. Can God save anyone anytime by any means he so desires? And the answer is always yes, of course he can. He told us to share the gospel, to preach the gospel, to speak to the unconverted, to warn them, to encourage them, to draw them in by whatsoever means we can. The Apostle Paul pleaded with people that they would repent. Was it effective? Yes. Was it worthwhile? Yes. Who responded? Only those whom God had ordained would respond. And no one else. No one else. But God chose the means and God uses means. We don't have any right to demand that God gets miraculously involved in every day of our lives. But God uses means. God uses people to accomplish his purpose when it suits God to do so. And the standard way by which the church is being built is by believers preaching the gospel. That's the standard way. That's the usual way. That's what you would expect if you read the scriptures. People preach. God uses that preaching and calls his elect into his church. And they really are preaching and they really are obeying and they really are living according to God's will and they really are being used by God even though God has no reason to use them other than grace, other than mercy, other than he wishes to. The Apostle Paul says the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. You see, it's kind of foolish, isn't it? Think about it. You, me. What are we? What are we like? It's kind of foolish. God says, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to take these people. I'm going to take these people, the lame, the brokenhearted, the rejects of society. I think I'm thinking of Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter, sorry, 4. Micah chapter 4. Verse 6 of Micah chapter 4. In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. I will assemble the lame. I will assemble the afflicted. I will assemble the cast-offs of the world. 
the cast-offs. My friends, does that description fit you? I feel like sometimes it certainly fits me. Nothing great, nothing special. Yet, yet, God assembles us into a church and God gives us his word to preach to the world. So to have God as a friend means that we receive communication from God, including God's self-revelation. It means that we have been chosen by God. It means that we are to be used as God's willing agent in the works of God that are being done in the world. And my friends, I'm going to say it means that we have our life vindicated. Vindicated, made useful. God has Abraham pray. You see what God's doing? God, perfect, timeless, almighty, whatever he wants done is done. He need not use anyone. He could do anything he so desires directly. But he takes a man and he says, let this man learn to intercede for other men. Let this man learn to express my will, to express my grace on behalf of other men. He takes a life which apart from his intervention would be a life of wastage a life of idolatry. The scripture tells us that Abraham and his family were called from an idolatrous background, worshippers of the moon and the stars. And God says, I will make this man my servant. I will give this person's life a purpose, a reason to live. It's kind of a theme in communication these days, in these sort of postmodern days. It's kind of a theme in movies and modern novels and stories, etc. The theme is life has no purpose. There's no ultimate, no ultimate meaning, no real reason. You just bumble along from day to day. You take what pleasure comes your way. If there's anything worthwhile, it's the pursuit of pleasure. Apart from that, life's not worth living. I mean, if you think about that, my friends, it means ultimately you're coming to suicide. Ultimately, you're coming to suicide because ultimately you'll sample all the pleasures you can possibly get. And ultimately, you'll get to the point where you're too old to keep pursuing pleasure. And once you're too old to keep pursuing pleasure, if that's your worldview, you might as well just end it now. Have one last good day and bring it to an end. Does it strike you that the world around you is somewhat suicidal? That the people around you are somewhat self-destructive? I mean, we live in a crazy nation. We live in a crazy society these days. People work for what reason? To be able to buy stuff. And one of the things they want to buy is stuff that stops them thinking seriously. Work six days so you can drink on the seventh. That's the Sabbath of the world. Work six days so you can smoke on the seventh. And I'm not talking about tobacco. That's the Sabbath of the world. I don't want to think. I don't want to ask big questions. I don't want to be troubled. Life has no meaning. The theory of evolution tells me that when I die, it's all over. I might as well just have what fun I can till the day that I die. The world around us is crazy. I admit it. It's crazy. But when God calls us and makes us his servants, 
You've got a reason to live. You have things to do. You see, mankind was created to bear the image of God. And one of the first things that we learn about God is that for six days he worked. And on the seventh day, he rested from the work of creation. Now, we're not like God. In what way are we not like God? God can work as hard as he likes. God can do as much as he wants. God can give away all that he has and never lose anything. His resources are infinite. Utterly infinite. You know, if I empty my bank account and give it to somebody, I've got nothing. It's gone. That's the way it works. God's resources are infinite. So we're not like God in that way. But we are like God in that we are expected to work. We're given tasks. We are task oriented. You know, if, if you want to meet a happy man, well, one of the things that that happy man will be doing is he will be working in some way or other. Whatever he feels his calling is. Whatever work it is that brings him satisfaction, he will be doing some kind of work. He will be doing something that he knows is useful, something that he knows is constructive. He'll be moving on, as it were, toward a goal, toward a target. Well, my friends, we have a goal and a target as Christians. Jesus said, I will build my church and against it, the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus said, the one who does not gather with me scatters from me. What's that telling you? Well, Jesus is about the business of building our church. And he's our older brother. He's our saviour. He's our friend. He's our king. He's our Lord. He he is our uh, God. We recognise him as God, the eternally begotten son of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of, of the same essence as the father. And he has a goal and he has work and he has tasks. And we are to live in the imitation of Christ, are we not? Paul in Philippians chapter 3 writes, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. A life with a purpose. A life with a reason. That's what you get through friendship with God. This life is vindicated. It's made purposeful. One of, the, one of the accusations that gets thrown at someone who's called a Calvinist or a predestinarian, one of the accusations that gets thrown at us is that we make life meaningless because everything's just fate according to the will of God. Here's my answer. God created the heavens and the earth and he upholds all things by his own power. If that is the basic founding fact of all creation, whether we submit or not, all are doing according to the will of God. Huh? What do I mean? Even the wicked, even the wicked, God is using them in one way or another for his glory. There's no escaping this. If God is who he says he is, there is no escaping this. If the scriptures be true, all things are according to the will of God. If the scriptures be true, nothing happens apart from God's ordained will. 
And if that is the case, the only way that you can live a worthwhile, vindicated, purposeful life is to live it in accordance with the will of God, to live that life in Christ, to live that life in obedience to the will of God, to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You have a reason to live. I spoke earlier about people and spoke of the fact that the feeling that you're utterly isolated and without friends in the world is one of those things that drives people down into the ground and drives them almost to suicide, if not to suicide. But isn't it funny when you look at the history of the Christian church and you look at the martyrs who gave their life for God? Usually they were isolated. You know, the world got hold of them, put them in a prison, put them in a dungeon, locked them in darkness, left them alone. And they never gave up. And they never committed suicide. And the world tried to destroy them. And they were not destroyed. And though they were put to death, yet we know that they lived because they lived in Christ. And to live in Christ is to have eternal life. To be in Christ To be in God, to have God as a friend is to have a life that cannot be destroyed and it cannot be taken from you. And we might lose everything and none of us wants to and none of us ever wants to be tested in this way. You know, we live our nice, comfortable lives here in the blessed country of Australia. We've got our house and our land and our cars and all those things and we don't want them taken away, but I'm telling you, We are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, this doesn't help you. But we are in Christ. And when those things happen, and if those things happen, God will uphold us. He's upholding us even now. When things get worse is when Christians get the most help from God. So though we might not want bad times, we should not fear them. I'm not saying you shouldn't be wise. I'm not saying you shouldn't, you shouldn't be preparing for bad times, but you should not fear them. They may well come in the providence of God. But understand this. We who are in Christ, we are upheld by God, by the power of God's Holy Spirit. We are in the hand of the shepherd, and the shepherd's hand is in the hand of the Father. And Scripture tells us that from there we cannot be taken under no circumstances. So, my friends, just as we close, what are some very simple, practical lessons that we can learn here? Well, for one, be willing to pray. It's not a waste of time. We're not speaking to the roof. Our words aren't falling to the ground. God awakens within us the desire to pray because he wants us to pray in order that he can answer our prayer. (laughs) Remember, he deals with us as though with little children. So, my friends, be encouraged in prayer. It is a worthwhile exercise. Learn to pray. Learn to pray according to the scriptures. To do that, you're going to have to learn the scriptures so that these words of God are on the tip of your tongue. My friends, remember, we actually have a better relationship with God than Abraham had. 
What do I mean? Well, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day. Abraham saw the day of Jesus from thousands of years before it happened. From thousands of years before it happened. When he said to his son Isaac, God will provide the sacrifice. He knew that God would ultimately provide the ultimate sacrifice. But he couldn't boast about it having been done. He couldn't boast about it having been done. That ultimate sacrifice, in that I find my redemption. That he could say. Well, my friends, we can boast about it having been done. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told he is the Son of Abraham. Took upon himself flesh. Lived in our place that perfect, pleasing life before God. Died in our place that perfect, pleasing death before God. Paid the price of sin. But being guilty of no sin on the third day was raised to life. Abraham says, I could see it afar off. My friends, we can see it up close and personal. We've got, I point once again to the word of God. We have the gospels. We have the knowledge of God's purposes being accomplished through our saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. His friendship with God is no small trifling thing. You can build your life upon it. You can build your life upon it, trusting in God for all things and at all times. Furthermore, my friends, he's gracious. The book of Genesis tells us that Abraham himself was not perfect. We have the incident with Hagar. We have the two times that he let his wife be taken off into another man's harem. Abraham himself was not perfect, yet God did not abandon Abraham. He will not abandon us. Salvation is salvation. Being accounted righteous through faith, it's not something that just blows away in the wind. It's a permanent condition. It's an eternal condition. It's a blessing from God that will never be taken away. And so, my friends, when you're called to prayer, and how do you know you're called to prayer? You want to pray. It's as simple as that. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. When we're called to pray, my friends, pray. It's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. God has called you to this life. It is God who has given you this life to live. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, I wish I was someone else in some other time. Don't worry about any of that. We're who we are because we're who God has made us. We live here and in this time because this is where God has put us. And it's our relationship with God that makes this life worth living. So, my friends, go forward from here in the obedience of faith. Remember, God is our friend. We need no other. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your grace, for your mercy, for your word, the Holy Scriptures, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We give you thanks for making us your own through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless this word to us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.